this episode of 750 Mills. Smell something nice? Better think twice. What your senses smell like can actually make you real sick, or maybe even kill you. Some countries today still have kings and queens in play, but what roles do they actually have, if any, in their governments? Then we'll talk about your second brain. That's a real thing, by the way. And what it's got to do with your physical and mental health. All that good stuff is today's secret link, the feel-good feature track, some words of wisdom on how to be successful from Robert Collier is coming at you right now. Hey everyone, welcome to 715 Mills, the show that highlights the good stuff in the world today and points you to news, music, and all manner of genuinely useful, or at the very least, mildly interesting things. It's all meant to help you start off your day or your week right. My name is Andre, and I'm happy to have you hanging out with me today. So I got some good and interesting stories for you along with some genuinely useful information that you can use to improve a few things here and there for yourself in your everyday life. We've got three main stories today, along with an important announcement about the podcast, so make sure you listen all the way through to the end. Perfumes. If you've ever traveled internationally, you'll know that perfumes are some of the most prominently advertised products in the duty-free shopping area airports make you walk through before you get to either your plane or the exit. Either that, or you have an aunt or an uncle with so little personality that they need to compensate for it by creating their own personal microclimate. That's 90% perfume or cologne, 10% breathable oxygen, that they'll kill anyone they stand right next to if they stay still for the next 10 minutes. Perfumes are powerful in more ways than one. They can set moods, make people and places more appealing, but did you know that they can also make you sick, seem genuinely sick? According to research cited by the Case Against Fragrances author Kate Grenville, as many as one in three people experience negative reactions to perfumes which includes symptoms like headaches, asthma, and even rashes. There's also a 2014 study that found that three-quarters of women with migraines caused by odors indicated that perfumes were the lead cause. So, what is it about a perfume that can make you unwell? A few things. Based on her research, Kate Grenville discovered that almost all modern perfumes and scents are made using artificial chemicals. Manufacturers are apparently not required to disclose the ingredients that they use, and the reason they give is that these are their trade secrets. Of course, this is to the detriment of those who are highly sensitive to strong scents and to those with allergies. There are actual laws that allow fragrance manufacturers to not list down or tell buyers about all the ingredients, certainly the chemicals, in the products that they create, with most of these falling under the catch-all word, fragrance. That's it. That's the main thing they tell you it's made of. That being said, what are some of the ingredients that perfumes tend to use that can cause irritation due to their toxicity? A report by Healthline's Catherine Watson notes that the most toxic ingredient in perfumes, colognes, and aftershaves tends to be ethanol or isoprophyl alcohol. The scented ingredients in perfume are infused into these alcohols as a way of preserving and stabilizing the product's desired scent. These alcohols are toxic and may cause symptoms if swallowed in amounts greater than 30 mils. So if you've noticed redness, itching, or sinus irritation when you're exposed to a certain fragrance, you probably have a sensitivity to something in it, but you may not quite find out what that ingredient is. One study conducted by the Environmental Working Group 
estimated that only 34% of stock ingredients often found in fragrances have been tested for toxicity. In fact, fragrance products are exempt from Food and Drug Administration testing. Um, I'm under the impression that this is primarily referring to the FDA in the United States, so just bear that in mind. Perfumes may include respiratory sensitizers that trigger wheezing or asthma. Also, hormone sensitizers that throw your endocrine system off balance. Also, secret ingredients that are harmful to your reproductive system when they build up in your body over time. If you're able to find an ingredient list that's unusually comprehensive for a fragrance, here are some ingredient names to look out for, especially if you're pregnant or know someone who's trying to get pregnant. So basically, here's a list of words I know I'm going to pronounce wrong. I'm, I'm telling you this right now. And first would be phthalates. That's a P-H-T-H-A-L-A-T-E-S. Another word would be styrene. S-T-Y-R-E-N-E. And then there's galaxolide, ketone, and other musk ketones. There's ethylene glycol. There's acetaldehyde. And there's oxybenzone. Oof, finally got through it. There are also problems caused by the natural essential oils, which can be sometimes used in fragrances. And these can have toxic effects, properties that stimulate immune reactions. And these have only recently received recognition. In a report from The Independent, one example that they give is B-damascenone, a compound in rose essential oils and Kentucky bourbon, which can cause allergic reactions in quantities larger than the average person would use. Another example would be 1,8-cineol, which gives eucalyptus its smell. It can cause liver damage in large quantities. So if you're one of the 1 in 3 in the population who gets some pretty bad allergic reactions whenever you get a whiff of something strong, let alone accidentally swallow it, now you know why. Anyway, how long have we been using perfumes? Here's a quick rundown. We've been using aromatics to make the human body smell pleasant and set the mood for certain environments for a variety of reasons and purposes for a few thousand years now, beginning in ancient Mesopotamia, Egypt, and the Indus Valley Civilization, as early as sometime around 3300 BC. The world's first recorded chemist is considered to be a woman named Taputi, a perfume maker mentioned in a cuneiform tablet from the 2nd millennium BC in Mesopotamia. She distilled flowers, oil, and calamus with other aromatics, then filtered them and put them back in the still several times. Perfumery was eventually further refined by the Romans and Arabs. Fact is, the word perfume comes from a Latin word that means to smoke through. In the 9th century, the Arab chemist Al-Kindi, or Al-Kindis, wrote the Book of the Chemistry of Perfume and Distillations, which contained more than a hundred recipes for fragrant oils, salves, aromatic waters, and substitutes or imitations of costly drugs. The book also described 107 methods and recipes for perfume making and perfume making equipment. Between the 16th and 17th centuries, perfumes were used primarily by the wealthy to mask body odors resulting from infrequent bathing. Hmm. Today, scents drive a global industry that moves a huge amount of money. From the highest-end aromatics endorsed by celebrities, down to pharmacy-grade deodorants like Axe body sprays that are marketed to the Oakley-wearing easily duped and the shower disinclined. And a little bit of interesting news from where I'm hanging out in. Just this year, 
Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II has become the fourth longest serving monarch in the history of the world. She's been ruling for over 68 years and change. The Queen is also the longest reigning British monarch, having surpassed her great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, who ruled for 63 years. So with her moving on to number four on the list, who are the top three longest serving monarchs in the history of the world then? The third longest reigning monarch of all time is Johan. Is it Johan? Johan? Not sure. Johan II of Liechtenstein, known as Johan II the Good, who was the Prince of Liechtenstein between 1858 and 1929. He was 18 when he started his rule, and he reigned until his death, ruling for 70 years and 91 days. The second longest reigning monarch is Bumibol Aduliadej of Thailand, Whew. the ninth monarch of Thailand from the Chakri dynasty, titled Rama the Ninth. He began his reign on June 9, 1946. He became the longest reigning monarch in Thai history, as well as being the longest reigning monarch who reigned only as an adult, going on for 70 years and 126 days before his death in 2016. Finally, the longest reigning monarch of all time is Louis XIV of France, who reigned from the age of four when his father died on May 14, 1643. He held the title of king for 72 years and 110 days until his death on September 1, 1715, just four days before he would have turned 77. Now here's the thing. Queen Elizabeth II would only need to rule an additional four years if she wants to take on the title of the longest-serving monarch of a sovereign state in history. Despite being 94 years old this year, people have observed that she's still going strong, so four more years looks like it just might happen. Here's a few interesting facts about Queen Elizabeth II that maybe you never even realized were things, even if you're from around these parts. Uh, here's, here's fact number one. The Queen was born on April 21, 1926. She was crowned back in June 2, 1953, and she turned 94 years old this year, 2020 the 68th year of her reign. Her full official title is Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, of the United Kingdom of Great Britain, and Northern Ireland and her other realms and territories, Queen, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith. All of that, that's her official title. Related to that last bit, being the Queen also means that uh, Queen Elizabeth is the Supreme Governor, actual title, of the Church of England. Fact number three, the Queen is the only person in all of Britain who is legally allowed to drive without a driver's license. Fact number four, she was the first female from the British royal family to serve in the military, which she did during World War II. She spent a year begging her father, King George VI, for permission to do just that, and eventually he gave in and let her do that. She joined the Auxiliary Territorial Service, where she trained where she trained as and became a driver for the 2nd Subaltern Windsor Unit, where she also learned to repair vehicles as a mechanic. And then, Queen Elizabeth II also doesn't need a passport to travel anywhere in the world. And the reason why, according to the official website of the British monarchy, is that as a British passport is issued in the name of Her Majesty, it is unnecessary for the Queen to possess one. All other members of the royal family, including the Duke of Edinburgh, and the Prince of Wales have passports. Well, we pretty much know what roles royals played for their respective nations in the past, but what about today? 
What roles do kings and queens have today? According to Reference.com, historical kings had complete domain and made all government decisions. Today, the role of kings is mostly symbolic. They actively engage in rituals that reflect national tradition rather than political influence. So they used to be solely responsible for the well-being of their kingdoms. Although they may have had a court with whom they consort on occasion, the king held the ultimate power and little could be done or said to question his authority. Most nations that were formerly ruled by kings, however, now have some sort of constitution in place that prescribes a more democratic approach to government. The role of royals in such cases is now more to serve as the face of their kingdoms. The royalty maintains formal titles and acts as heads of their nation, but have little, if any, political power. In the case of commonwealths, such as that of Great Britain, the king or queen is also a uniting force for all the member nations and territories. Kings also represent traditional rights that no longer have much political significance, but are important to national pride and maintain important roles within respective cultures. Hey everyone, welcome to the Midway Break for this episode. I just have an announcement to make. The podcast will be taking a break for a few weeks and we'll be back with a new episode on November 2. That's the first Monday of that month. I've learned a lot over the 10 episodes of doing this podcast so far, and I'm taking a moment to really just put it all together and work on some behind-the-scenes stuff to improve the podcast, along with a bit of housekeeping and other personal stuff. What does that mean? Well, the most important thing is that I'll be working on tightening up the way I work on and produce the podcast episodes themselves, along with the way I produce things like audiograms and extra content for social media. That way I can maintain or even improve the quality of the episodes while working faster. That's the goal. I'll also be looking at extra tools and maybe a few services that can help me simplify things so I can focus more on the actual research, writing, and the recording of episodes versus just having to fiddle with things all the time. That means I have to test things, figure them out, and see how they fit with the way I want to work in the time that I have. The key thing to remember is that there will be a fresh new episode on November 2. If you're subscribed to the podcast, you don't need to worry about anything. You'll get a notification once episode 11 gets published. If you're not subscribed yet, but you've been listening to the podcast all this time, what are you waiting for, man? Make sure subscribed is the easiest way to get fresh episodes and listen to the podcast. I mean, sure, you can just use your web browser and head on over to the 750ml's website, click a few times, just stream it from there, but nothing beats the convenience of just opening up a app like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or even Spotify or Deezer, and just hitting the play button once you get the notification on your screen. So make sure you subscribe to the 750 Mills podcast, just hit that follow button or that subscribe button, it depends on the app that you're using, so you can take it easy and make it ultra convenient for yourself. Using a web browser? Ain't nobody got time for that, man. Oh yeah, one more thing. You know the featured tracks that we talk about every episode? I don't know if you know, but there's an official playlist that has every single featured track from the 750ml's podcast on both Apple Music and Spotify, so you can listen to all of them at once, all of the feel-good featured tracks in the order that they were highlighted from all of the episodes. So if you are a Spotify user or an Apple Music user, I will be putting a link to the playlist uh, in the show notes for this episode, so that anytime you want to listen to music that'll cheer you up and make you feel good, you can just hit play on that thing and be on your merry. 
back to the episode. Gut instinct. My gut tells me this is something I gotta pay attention to. I'm going with my gut. We sometimes hear people say these things when they can't quite reason themselves into or out of a decision, but they got a strong feeling about it one way or the other. There's this underlying suggestion that in this moment you're not quite using your brain to make a decision that's strictly smart, but you're somehow convinced that this is the correct decision nonetheless. Here's a question to chew on though. Are you really not using your brain in this moment? Or at the very least, your second brain? That's right. According to science, humans have something that we can call a second brain. A report from science focuses Robert Matthews states that we have a second brain that influences our judgment. It's known as the enteric nervous system, or ENS. Enteric meaning to do with intestines. It's an extensive network of brain-like neurons and neurotransmitters wrapped in and around our gut. Most of the time, we're unaware of its existence, as its prime function is what one would expect, managing digestion. Yet the presence of all that brain-like complexity is not a coincidence. We don't need to be aware of its existence because we only know of its main function, managing digestion. But there's a reason for its brain-like complexity. The ENS is in constant communication with the brain and our skull via the body's own information superhighway, the vagus nerve. And now it's becoming clear that all those signals flowing back and forth can influence our decisions, mood, and general well-being. Dr. Emeron Mayer, an ENS specialist from the University of California and author of The Mind-Gut Connection, says, Your gut has capabilities that surpass all your other organs and even rival your brain. This second brain is made up of 50 to 100 million nerve cells, as many as are contained in your spinal cord. There's a lot of research going on worldwide that's exploring what exactly this can mean for us and for everyday health. Links are emerging between the ENS and disorders ranging from obesity and clinical depression to rheumatoid arthritis and even Parkinson's disease. Here's something interesting to note. Around 80% of the vagus nerve is dedicated to reporting information to the brain. So the idea of having a gut instinct is actually based on your biology, at least to some degree. If you've ever felt queasy or you get butterflies in your stomach when you're going through a rough spot, or you feel sick to your stomach when things go very wrong, the brain labels those situations with the effect that they've had on your gut. This means that you've got a rapid access library that helps you assess new challenges literally based on gut feeling rather than conscious, rational thought. That being said, you probably shouldn't always go with your gut. The quality, accuracy, and underlying biases of this gut-brain dialogue vary between different individuals, and this is according to Dr. Mayer. While fast, your gut instinct's response can also be warped by other life events or even what you just ate. And sometimes it's just plain wrong. Faced with a huge financial decision, properly thinking it through is likely going to be a better bet than a snap decision based on your gut. So, what effect can the state of your second brain have on your mental health? Well, we previously noted that the gut and gut instinct will vary from person to person, and this is because not only does each one of us have unique individual experiences, but the composition of the main thing that affects our gut is also unique to you and me, and that's the gut microbiome. Your body contains a vast area of bacteria, 
viruses and other organisms with the biggest and most diverse collection of these being in our guts. The enteric nervous system influences your brain and your mood, and it even plays a role in depression like we mentioned earlier. Researchers are focusing on a specific neurotransmitter found in the ENS, which is serotonin. Serotonin has a lot to do with your mood, learning, and memory, and affects a lot of other important brain things as well. So an imbalance in serotonin can have a few bad effects on you. This is why some antidepressant drugs like Prozac have been developed to treat this condition specifically in this way. Around 95% of the body's serotonin is produced not by the brain, but by the ENS. It's also affected by what we eat, the state of our microbiome, and the signals sent along the vagus nerve to the brain. All of this is now driving a broad range of research toward using this information to help us develop better treatment methods and tools that can help people deal with mental health issues more effectively than before. If your second brain has such a huge effect on your physical and mental health, well, what can you do to keep it as healthy as possible? Remember the saying, you are what you eat? That's not a bad place to start. Your body will respond to the quality of the food you put into it accordingly. Put in low quality, highly processed and junky food, especially sugary food, which is highly inflammatory, your health will suffer. Put in high quality, healthful whole foods that are nutrient rich and protein rich, your health will improve. Sounds reasonable, right? Well, now we have a little bit of science to add context to what seems to be a fairly straightforward idea. The types of food you eat will affect the composition of your gut microbiome. And knowing that your gut microbiome has a huge effect on your health and your mood should help you appreciate that this matters a lot to your overall quality of life. Anyway, it's time for this episode's featured track, Something from 30 Seconds to Mars, a track released in 2009 called Kings and Queens, a soaring, epic exploration of human potential in spite of humanity's flaws. The things we tend to be mistakenly obsessed with in everyday life ultimately setting the stage for learning from our mistakes. And all of this is expressed quite poetically in the way the song is written and composed. I'll put a link to the track for all of you Apple Music and Spotify users, but if you can spare the extra time to watch the video that I'll be embedding in the show notes, I recommend you do that, because the video itself is kind of an extra treat, with some having described it as an epic love letter to the city of Los Angeles, rife with allusions to works of art from the likes of Banksy, and it's got some other pop culture references as well. That's it for this episode of 750 Mills. Make sure you head on over to 750ml.fm to check out links to stuff we've talked about here. That includes the featured track, this episode's secret link, and you can subscribe and listen to the 750 Mills podcast on podomatic.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever podcasts might be found. Just type in 750ml podcast in the search box and tap on the subscribe or the follow button, whatever that might appear as in the app that you're using. Links to all of that will be in the show notes, which you can find on 750ml.fm. That's 750ml.fm. Hey, if you've been enjoying it so far, please consider leaving a star rating and review. Your feedback helps improve the podcast and it can help other people find it as well. I'd really appreciate it. Anyway, folks, thanks for hanging out with me. I'll leave you with a thought from Robert Collier on what you really need to do in order to succeed at, well, anything, really. Here's what he says. 
Success is the sum of small efforts repeated day in and day out. Hope you guys have a good day. Take care and see you in November, okay?